Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. This is the first podcast that I am actually producing in the new year. And uh, it's another exciting year of Wealth Formula Podcast coming your way. And this uh, particular episode will not disappoint uh, we are going to be talking with uh, uh, President Ronald Reagan's former budget director, who is a very, very smart guy by the name of David Stockman. You know, we are in a unique period of time with the economy. We know something's going on, right? We know it's about to happen, but we don't know what it is, and we don't know when it is or what it's going to look like. And pretty much everybody agrees on that. I mean, usually it's just the contrarians saying that something bad is going to happen or, you know, there's going to be some real trouble along the way. And, you know, the, the, the Keynesians will, you know, try to try to put a rosy uh, label on it. But right now, everybody's kind of predicting some kind of trouble uh, in the months uh, coming our way here. Uh, you know, whether that's a mild recession, uh, that's what Biden is predicting himself. Uh, to an all-out zombie apocalypse, which if you listen to podcasts, uh, the podcast ecosystem, there's probably plenty of those individuals who will be calling for the apocalypse and to buy gold and silver and that sort of thing. Now, even the big brain contrarians uh, in this space actually differ, though, on what that declaration of events is going to look like. Uh, we had Jim Rickards on recently, which you may have listened to. If you haven't, you should. And he sees a rapidly coming deep recession, followed by the Fed essentially capitulating its hawkish stance and then lowering rates. Nomi Prins, she was on a, a little bit longer ago, a few months ago, forecasts a deep recession as well, but she views the markets as relatively shielded in some ways because of the fact that there is this what she calls great distortion between financial markets and the uh, real world economy. And that basically the Fed will come to the rescue of the markets no matter what. And therefore, investors essentially look at it as, you know, a safety net. And why not just keep investing? Now, my guest this week on Wealth Formula Podcast, as I mentioned, is David Stockman. Now, he differs from both Rickards and from Nomi Prince. And he believes that the Fed will not reverse its course regardless of recession. He also believes that Prince, uh, what 
Prince has described, as we, we talked about earlier, the distortion between financial markets and the economy, while it may be the case now, will not necessarily be the case later. And he calls it sort of more like, you know, the great catch-up. Um, not catch-up as in the tomato sauce, but catch-up. Uh, and we will see the equity and real estate markets correct in, in a significant fashion to reflect the fledgling economy that uh, will happen, according to him. David Stockman was also Ronald Reagan's budget director, and he was a, a Washington insider and uh, also was on Wall Street for many years. I mean, this guy has seen it all. In fact, he would, when he was with Reagan and he was in Washington, that was the era of hyperinflation and Paul Volcker. And he's also spent a significant time in his career on Wall Street in his career. So the point is, the guy knows what he's talking about. He's a very smart guy. But so are Nomi Prinz and Jim Rickards. And none of them are dummies, for sure. That is for sure. They're all brilliant people. But that's just the nature of the period that we are in. The best any of us can do is to study what the economics gurus are saying and trying to make decisions based on what we can conclude for ourselves because, you know, they can't all be right, right? So somebody's going to be wrong here, and who knows? I know your prediction is as good as mine or probably better. Who knows? But bottom line is I think the job that we have to do as investors is to continue to listen to these people who think and write a lot about these topics, You know, like Nomi Prince, like Jim Rickards, like David Stockman. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to uh, have an interview with David Stockman, and you can get his take. Now, if you haven't done so after you listen to this show, go back to listen to Jim Rickards uh, a couple shows ago. Uh, it might have been last week. I can't remember. No, yeah, it was two weeks ago. And then uh, also look for the Nomi Prince show on The Great Distortion uh, and compare them side by side. Take notes and see what you think. Anyway, uh, it's a good exercise to go through, I think, if you're really interested in what might happen in the next few months to the next couple of years. And we will have this great conversation with David Stockman right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is David Stockman. Now, David is a best-selling author, 
Washington Insider and a former director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Ronald Reagan. He is the author of multiple books, including uh, the most recent one, The Great Money Bubble, Protect Yourself from the Coming Inflation Storm, Trumped a Nation on the Brink of Ruin and How to Bring It Back, and The Great Deformation, the Corruption of Capitalism in America. David, uh, thanks so much for joining us today on Wealth Formula Podcast. Happy to be with you. A lot of lot to talk about in those topics. Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. yeah I'll tell you. And, and, you know, we've had some interesting people on um, that you, you probably know, you know, like the Jim Rickards and some of these right. other guys who, who have, I think a little bit of different take from what you have. So it'll be interesting to contrast that. Um, but one of the things I wanted to start with, you know, is, um, knowing this unique perspective that you, uh, have, which is, you know, essentially being a Washington insider and then also being in the Reagan administration, um, particularly in the times of hyperinflation, uh, and Paul Volcker. And I'm just curious, right. you know, what, what is different? What's the same and what's different about what's going on uh, with inflation right now? That's a great question. Um, and, you know, I have spent half of my career in Washington, half on Wall Street. So I have a kind of unique blend. But the part in Washington began in 1970. So I was there during the entire sort of uh, super inflation of the 1970s, the double digit, the fact that even though he didn't want to do it, Jimmy Carter was forced to bring in Paul Volcker, who then administered some pretty severe uh, monetary castor oil. Uh, it finally did bring the inflation down. But the key point is, I think there's a fundamental difference between then and now. Uh, in the 1970s, the world economy had not yet become globalized and fully integrated. There was no real supply chain. Yes, there was a lot of trade in basic commodities or even uh, uh, iron and steel and uh, some automobiles. But basically, the U.S. economy uh, was uh, an isolated uh, kind of island unto itself so that when the Fed, uh, you know, uh, lost control in the early 70s when Burns, uh, you know, hit the accelerator mm -hmm. because Nixon wanted to be reelected with an overwhelming right. majority. Right. Um, that immediately translated into uh, a roaring domestic inflation, too much credit creation, too much demand. Uh, there wasn't enough supply. Prices rose rapidly. Then on top of that, we got the second oil crisis and commodity prices soaring again. Now, that I think people are roughly familiar with that, but that was the sequence in the 1970s. And remember, it was centered largely in the United States. It's spread to the rest of the world, but it was centered here. Now, what's different is that after uh, the mid-80s, uh, uh, when Greenspan became chairman of the Fed and really, uh, you know, uh, turned on the uh, printing presses, and something new appeared in the global economy, and that was the Chinese economy. That was the uh, uh, process of massive offshoring of domestic production. And the effect of that basically was to create a period of time in which we were actually exporting inflation uh, because of all the money being created by the Fed, but importing deflation in terms of uh, the huge increase in goods 
that were coming in from China, Vietnam, uh, Mexico, and so forth. So we had um, a false, uh, uh, a kind of false deflation or false lowflation for about two decades in which the central banks thought they could run the printing press with abandon and there wouldn't be any consequence because the measured inflation rate anyway was only 2% or 1.5% or 1.4%. And we got all this business going about uh, lowflation and the Fed was missing its targets from below and a lot of things which would have been inconceivable in the 1970s became, you know, par for the course, uh, core to the uh, mainstream narrative in the last 10 uh, to 15 years. Now, my key point is that's all over and done. Uh-huh. You know, uh, the COVID, the global COVID uh, disruption totally dislocated the supply chain. Uh, the, the deflation that we were importing in goods uh, quickly ended a year, a year and a half ago. And suddenly the uh, inflation that had been missing actually just came out of hiding and we were off to the races with seven, eight, nine percent inflation, um, uh, and uh, the highest levels in forty years. But again, this real, was real quick, different. David, when you say, when yeah. you, can I just uh, clarify sure. something? Yeah, that, the yeah. deflation. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, the the deflation that we were getting, sort of the false deflation or expectation. Uh, uh, you know, exporting our own inflation in, in exchange for deflation. Why did that go away? I mean, I mean, certainly. Um, there has been a slowdown of, of uh, you know, the, the supply chain, et cetera, in the last couple of years. But why why did that go away the, w- the way you're talking about it? Okay, that's a good uh, question. And let's just put a couple statistics on it. If you go back to 1995 through 2019, that's right before the COVID hit, right before the supply chain got totally disrupted. The uh, CPI for durable goods or the PCE deflator for durable goods, which is what the Fed goes by, declined, and this is startling, by 40% over that, uh, you know, two and a half decade period. And it was that 40% decline in the index for goods that more than offset, uh, you know, the two to three percent inflation we had in services, and led to the I call it split screen inflation, led to the delusion that uh, there wasn't any inflation problem. But then what happened was obviously the supply chain got disrupted, and as a result of that, import prices have soared uh, tremendously in the last year and a half. So now you have the worst of both worlds. You have the same uh, services sector inflation that we had before, but it's accelerated. And on top of that, you have goods rising, and they have been, now they're starting to cool off, but have been rising by double digits when uh, for 25 years they were going down at uh, two to three percent a year so that that's the big shift and um that's why the fed is, is that is temporary the, is that temporary do you think or do you think no, that's the new no yeah. no i don't i don't think it's temporary because you can only offshore your economy once yeah in other words when we uh set uh, uh production to china for 
you know, shoes and uh, apparel and electronics and uh, toys and all the rest of it. You could only do that once. And that brought the um, cost level down on a one-time basis. But now China is in the same boat that we were like 35 years ago. Uh, Their uh, costs are rising and uh, they have a, a real scarcity of workers, actually. Uh, their labor force is actually shrinking and will continue to shrink uh, quite substantially in the decades ahead. So the one-time gain, is, it was kind of a labor arbitrage. The one-time labor arbitrage is over. And now, even if we continue to import uh, at high rates, probably not as high as we did uh, prior to 2019, but at high rates, we will not have negative 2% inflation on the goods coming in. It'll be positive inflation. And uh, therefore, the central banks are really uh, in a totally new ballgame. Talk a little bit about, if you would, the, um, you know, compare and contrast the the Volcker approach to the, the, the problem of hyperinflation that you saw with uh, the way the Fed is currently managing the situation. Yeah, uh, the Fed, um, Volcker was not nearly as tentative as the Fed had been. Well, you know, the, the inflation became pretty evident about March 2021. If you look at the data, you can see there's a ex- clear acceleration in the early uh, 2021. By the spring of 2021, we were above 5%, and it was off to the races from there. But it took them, as you recall, almost a year until March 2022 before they raised interest rates mm-hmm. from the zero bound. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Now, Volcker wasn't uh, even in that uh, you know, he wasn't in that league. I remember when he became Fed chairman, August 1979, uh, the inflation rate was already running 10, 11 percent. But here's the key thing. The real rate uh, of interest, uh, let's say on the 10 year U.S. Treasury, which is kind of the benchmark for everything, including real estate, stock market, everything else. The real rate was about negative two to negative three percent. In other words, inflation was running above even the yield back then. And Volcker said, this can't stand. We will not get inflation uh, subdued. We will not bring it to heel until we have positive real rates. We can't allow speculators and you know businesses and households to borrow at a rate below the rate of inflation, or we will never bring the excess demand under control. So he moved aggressively, and by the spring of 1981, which is you know maybe a year and a half, the real rate uh, on the 10-year, that is inflation adjusted, was positive 9%. Mm-hmm. In other words, it yeah. went from negative two to positive yeah. nine. That shocked the system. And the whole inflation psychology uh, was uh, broken, was punctured. And then once people gained confidence that there wasn't a inflation spiral continuing to feed itself, behavior changed and prices came down. Uh, it didn't happen overnight. 
but they came down far more dramatically than people thought at the time. At the time, they said it's going to take a decade to bring inflation down from double digits. Actually, by 1983, 1984, inflation was back to 2 to 3%, and then he drove it even lower than that as we got into the mid-1980s. So that was, that was a totally different Fed. That was a Fed that believed in sound money. And that was a Fed run by a chairman uh, who uh, really uh, understood that it wasn't his job to pacify Wall Street. It wasn't his job to make politicians happy or uh, speculators or investors, uh, uh, stock traders happy. It was his job to bring inflation to a halt and uh, allow the capitalist uh, economy to function on a non-inflationary basis. And he did that. And uh, for a while, we had a pretty good economy until then we got Greenspan and uh, we went into a, a new cycle of money printing that, you know, we've been talking about here. So the, uh, you know, going back to a recent interview I did with Jim Rickards, his, um, you know, his take on the current situation was maybe the Fed continues to raise rates another, uh, you know, another 50 basis points. And then um, the net effect of that uh, raising rates for as rapidly as they did, I mean, for, for now at least, um, that that would drive us into a fairly deep recession. And that in turn would trigger the, uh, the Federal Reserve to reverse course and become dovish. What, uh, what's your take on that? Well, I think that something like that will happen, but in slow motion. If I have any difference with Jim, that would be it. I usually don't. In other words, uh, probably the Fed is nearing the peak of its hiking cycle. But what's going to happen, in my judgment, is a long pause. In other words, it won't be a pivot where they go from raising to right. cutting. Right. It's going to be a long pause because we're going to be stuck with what will appear to be a severe stagflation. That is an economy that is weakening and maybe even technically in recession, but inflation rates on the headline and on the uh, PCE deflator that are still running uh, five, six, even 7%, and therefore uh, not uh, in a condition to permit the Fed uh, to pivot. So therefore, we're going to have the worst of both worlds, I think, for the next year or year and a half, that is a macro condition of stagflation, a Fed that has raised rates high, but is not showing any sign that it's going to come to the rescue of the stock market or investors and bail everything out. Now, people say, "Yeah, but when when the recession hits, uh, won't they? Uh, you know, won't they panic? Won't they reverse course?" The answer is, if you look at the past, it takes a while for people to come to an agreement that we are in a recession, <laughs> okay? The, da the data is really complex. There's a lot of noise in it. The first uh, take on a lot of this so-called incoming data is you know, then revised uh, substantially over time, particularly on the unemployment rate. And so therefore it takes uh, probably six months, even a year, for a, uh, a deep inflation to manifest itself, prove itself, and create uh, pressure on the Fed. 
And that's where I think we are now. In other words, we're going to slowly sink into recession. It won't be like a sharp uh, V-shaped um, collapse. It'll, it'll likely be uh, a extended period of very weak uh, growth or even uh, moder- you know modestly negative growth. And that's why I, you know, I call it stagflation and why the Fed's going to be between the rock and a hard place. It uh, won't be able to stimulate, and yet it'll be reluctant to um, uh, break the economy even more for fear of compounding the recession. Your timeline you're saying is, you know, maybe 12 to 18 months, but we're looking at, when you talk about stagflation, isn't, isn't part of stagflation uh, higher unemployment? I mean, right now, we, we don't have that problem, right? Is, um, yeah. is that something that you anticipate what we we start seeing a problem with in the next several months or yeah oh yeah I, I think uh, we've already uh, peaked in terms of employment you've seen the big controversy recently where the Philadelphia Fed did a re reanalysis of the BLS data for the second quarter last year April May and June and concluded rather than one and a half, 1.05 million new jobs had been something like 12,000. Now, that, that's a heck of a difference, right? <laughs> yeah. 12,000, yeah. you know, that's like a 99% error factor. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether the Philadelphia Fed's analysis is totally uh, correct or not, but I do know from past history that the Fed, or that the BLS overestimates the job count at turning points in the economy. And the reason for it is that a lot of what's in the BLS data for the initial, you know, the initial data this month, next month, the month after is basically model data. It's not, you know, something they go out and count uh, heads and count uh, payroll checks and so forth. It's model data. And then the models get updated. They get uh, revised and you find out there was a lot more unemployment than you thought. That's the first thing. The second thing is we've gone through a period where there was an artificial scarcity of labor because of the COVID, the lockdowns, uh, all of the stimmies, uh, you know, the stimmies as I call them, the stimulus money that went out to people. And so as a result, employers suddenly found themselves scrambling to hire people. And as a result of that, I think there's a pretty good case that they've overhired that they've been hoarding labor because they went through a uh, kind of traumatic experience in 20, uh, second half of 2020 and 2021, where they needed to hire people and couldn't. And so uh, therefore, as I say, they're hoarding uh, or accumulating labor. Now what's gonna happen as, uh, is as demand uh, continues to weaken and their order books uh, get softer, uh, they're going to relax uh, that posture and they're going to start either stop hiring or they're going to actually start laying off people and we'll be in a new unemployment cycle. But that's going to be slow developing. That's what people don't see. And, you know, you're not going to have 8% unemployment overnight, the Fed panicking and uh, cutting rates aggressively. I think it's going to inch its way up slowly because there's been so much artificial retirement from the labor force. I mean, in other words, what should be the first wave of unemployment uh, that would occur in a normal cycle 
uh, are people that have already left the labor force. They're not counted, you know, by uh, the BLS because they took early retirement. Uh, they're on welfare of one type or another, or they're living in mom and dad's basement uh, doing gig work that doesn't even count yeah. in the statistics. Let's talk a little bit about, if, if we would, about um, the markets and, you know, specifically the equity markets and, you know, the real estate market. Uh, obviously, they have benefited tremendously from the cheap money. And, and so essentially, we had a type of acid inflation well before the consumers ever saw that, right? Um, yep. What, first, so like I'm curious is, that as this market starts to decline, is it clearly the case, in your opinion, that the equity markets, for example, will decline as well? I bring this up because another person I had interviewed, uh, Nomi Prinz, has been talking about this great distortion uh, between real uh, markets yeah. and, um, or, you know, real economy and markets. And so to a certain extent, I wonder you know, even looking at COVID as an example where all these businesses were shut down, but the stock market was going crazy. Um, What do you see as the, what's really going to happen? Uh, Do you, do you feel like they'll be, they'll necessarily have to be a, um, maybe a reversion to, to reality and why, if that's the case? Yeah. Well, I think the Fed made a gigantic historic mistake when it panicked in March 2020 and just opened up the printing press and took its balance sheet from 3.8 trillion to 9 trillion in the course of about 16 months. Okay. And it was on the theory that since the economy, uh, you know, dove into a deep recession in the spring of 2020, that it had to pull out all the stops to try to rescue the real Main Street economy. But that was a total error because the reason the economy took a nosedive was there was a supply side contraction ordered by the government, Mm -hmm. i.e. the lockdowns. Okay. And when you tell restaurants close, when you tell shopping malls, don't let anybody in the front doors. When you tell gyms, you know, uh, not not to be uh, in, in business, then, you know, millions of people are going to be laid off. But that was not because of inadequate demand or because credit was too expensive or any other thing that the Fed could do something about. But it was because of Dr. Fauci and what I call the virus patrol. And then the panic that they unleashed among the public uh, that basically, uh, you know, went out of circulation, so to speak, uh, exited the uh, commerce. And so therefore we had an economy that came to a dead stop from the supply side, not the demand side. So what did the Fed do? They printed money like crazy, but it didn't end up uh, in the real economy. It didn't end up on Main Street creating credit uh, demand, it ended up on Wall Street and uh, tremendous inflation of financial assets. And as a result, during 2020 and most of 2021, uh, all of that inflationary credit that was being created by the Fed, and it's a lot, $5 trillion. I mean, if we could round it here, they went from $4 trillion to $5 trillion, or $9 trillion in that short period of time, 
That ended up uh, in the speculative precincts of the bond market, the stock market, the tech uh, sector, uh, the uh, cryptoverse, uh, and anything anything that was going up, uh, speculators were buying and pushing up even higher. So now we have to face the music that that great uh, aberrational bubble it's got to be punctured because it wasn't real. It wasn't sustainable. It wasn't linked to the real economy. It was a giant mistake by the central banks, the Fed and the others followed. And now they're trying to reverse the damage that they've done. And they really uh, don't know how to get out of uh, the mess that they're in. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's curious because I guess the, you know, there's there's also this, perception i think amongst people and um about this idea of the the great distortion that that effectively the fed or uh government policy will intervene no matter what right mm-hmm. and um that creates this um this this almost this game of chicken between the investor uh the investor world and um you know the policymakers um you don't see that game of chicken being won by the investors again, though. Yeah, I think that's the big uh, change. Um, the The Fed has now uh, realized that uh, it's got a tremendous uh, uh, stagflationary crisis on its hands and that it's going to have to administer some pretty tough medicine. I'm not saying that Powell is the new Volcker. You know, yeah. I just don't think he's yeah. that tough i don't think he's that uh uh you know he's got that kind of backbone but i think he's going to go a lot farther than people think uh you know i was very critical of him during that whole period when he was talking about uh, transitory inflation and uh during the period before that when he was talking about inflation being too low that was uh, completely wrong but i think he's come to his senses and there is a developing consensus at the fed even among the keynesians which i think is important to note they actually believe in what i call painting by the numbers they do believe they're two percent mm-hmm. <laughs> i think there should be zero percent target but they believe in two percent and they're gonna one way or another attempt to uh maintain and preserve their credibility by getting to two percent but getting there is going to be a lot harder the embedded inflation is a lot stickier uh, then people realize, yeah, I think maybe a lot of people may have seen the data the Atlanta Fed put out a couple of days ago showing wage gains on a year over year basis in November as between people who kept their job over that period versus job switchers, people who changed jobs or changed employers or changed industries. And if you look at that second category, uh, wages were up by plus 7.7%. And that's the category to look at because on the margin, that's where wages were being set in the economy, not by the people who weren't going anywhere, but by the people who were uh, moving on uh, because they saw uh, better uh, job uh, wage prospects uh, in uh, with other employers. So when you have wages rising on the margin at 7.7%, that's going to come through into service prices, even domestically produced goods, and you're not going to get this sudden 
overnight collapse of inflation that they're all dreaming about. It's just not going to happen. And uh, I think we've got more and more evidence that what's built in is a way is a price wage cost spiral that's going to take a uh, several years to to uh, purge from the system. Um, one, I guess, the one question I think would be very useful um, is for an investor um, who is involved with these markets. Um, how how do you protect yourself against? you know, the onslaught of all the things that you're talking about. Yeah, very good. Um, I think the first thing is to recognize it's a new ball game. In other words, the things that have worked for 10 or 15 years, I think will no longer be working. In other words, buying the dip worked. There's no doubt about it from the fall of uh, 2008 uh, to the uh, recent peak last fall. The NASDAQ 100 was up 1,250%. Okay, during that same period of time, uh, so if you bought the dip all the way through uh, that, uh, you know, uh, 12, 13 year period, uh, you were up 1,250%. At the same time, the GDP was only up 55%. Now, what people need to recognize is there is no way that the GDP, that the stock market can rise 23 times faster than the GDP over a sustained period of time and expect uh, that, you know, it'll have a happy ending. It won't. So what we're in now, I think, is a great um, uh, period of, uh, you know, catch up, a great period of, uh, uh, you know, paying the piper for uh, the tremendous uh, excess and bubble that we've had in the past. And therefore, the stock market and the bond market are not safe places uh, to put your uh, assets. Now, you can put your money in short-term treasuries, like six-month treasuries, one-year treasuries, even two years. There's not that much price risk, and now you're starting to get a decent yield of 4 or 5%. But the idea that you can, um, you know, make 25% return year in and year out, or you can double your money by picking the right tech stocks. I think all of that is gone and people are going to have to now uh, recognize that we're back to sort of uh, a not even normal environment, but a catch up environment where it's going to be very difficult uh, to make uh, any serious appreciation. And therefore the issue has to be capital preservation not capital appreciation. Now that is such a big change for most people that it's hard to really grasp or to accept. But I think if you only needed one word in terms of an investment um, slogan, let's say, an investment uh, concept, it would be preservation of capital rather than looking for you know, uh, high returns because uh, we've got too much catch up to do. David, the book is, again, the newest book is The Great Money Bubble, Protect Yourself from the Coming Inflation Storm. I assume it's available everywhere as um, all your books are. And um, I definitely uh, encourage people to pick up a copy of that. Uh, Thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Okay, very good. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. So, bottom line is David Stockman is a smart guy. So are Nomi Prince and Jim Rickards, and they don't really agree on what's going to happen, except for that something is going to happen with regard to some recessionary activity. Now, how the Fed reacts to that and what will happen with the markets ultimately is what everybody differs on. And it's what we have to, you know, see for ourselves as time goes by. So bottom line is, what do you do in this kind of situation? Well, you know, from the wealth formula investor group standpoint, we're also diversifying into some recessionary proof type stuff on like shipping and things like that. And the other thing is to remember that if you do have a recession, and especially if it's as bad as some of these folks say it is, it's going to be really, really good buying opportunities, right? I mean, you heard David talking about how much the S&P 500, you know, has gone up or the NASDAQ has gone up over the last, you know, since 2008, 2009. I mean, if there really is a, you know, recession, deep recession, and if he's right and that the markets actually follow the economy, then it'll be a good time to buy. It'll be a good time to buy equities. It'll be a good time to buy real estate, etc. And it's a great opportunity to make money. Anyway, interesting topic. Uh, I think it's a great one to have some friends uh, listen to the same podcast and maybe have a discussion uh, and learn from it. That's all I have this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.